Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this night. And Father, we are, we are lost without you, but with you we are found. And Lord Jesus, because you've adopted us into your kingdom, you've made us children of God through the, through the cross. Lord, we are found. We are walking in the light because we are trusting in you, Lord Jesus. So Lord, strengthen us tonight. Encourage us tonight. Lord, help us to leave here tonight with nuggets of truth from Jonah chapter 1. So God, do a work tonight. Speak prophetically through your word, by the Holy Spirit, through our study to each and every one of us tonight. We've gathered to honor you and glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Hey, so we're starting a new book tonight. Yay! Praise the Lord. Back into our Old Testament verse-by-verse study. So if you would tonight, please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Y'all like my picture up there? Kind of the the whale's tail, the fish, whatever. That's the the title of my teaching. Uh, It's probably going to be my my title throughout the the entire uh, four or five weeks that we're in this book. Is uh, running from a sovereign God. That, that's the story of Jonah's life, is running from a, a sovereign God. This is the world's greatest fish story, by the way. You know? Come on, everybody give me a laugh. <laughs> there we go. Yes, yes. But this is the greatest fish story. And I, I've been, we've been hearing it since Sunday from Andy's announcements till now, you know, all the cracks about the fish stories. But this is truly an amazing story. Um, truly an amazing story account of his life. Uh, who is Jonah? Let's talk about that first. Give you a little bit of background. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about Jonah and his background tonight. But uh, who is Jonah? Jonah, uh, he was a prophet in the northern tribe of Israel uh, between 7 and 800 BC. His father, as Jonah chapter 1 verse 1 says, was a Mittai. And it's also uh, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, confirms that that was his father. Here's an interesting fact. According to Jewish tradition, Jonah was the son of a widow at Zeropath. How many ever heard that? Uh, I I looked it up, I I read that, and I looked up some commentaries, and a a lot of people confirmed that, that according to ancient Jewish traditions, and even John MacArthur confirms it in his commentary, that uh, this was most likely... Jonah was most likely the son of Zarephath. So I'm going to bring up that passage. I'm going to read it to you. Because if this is the case, the account of Jonah is not the first uh, miracle of sovereignty in his life. Not only does he rescue him uh, from running, but he also uh, saves him or delivers him at birth. But 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 to 24 says, Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman the mistress of the house became sick and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid uh, laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, 
Have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is true. And according to Jewish rabbinical teachings, and I I did some, I did multiple research on this. It's a very strong case has been made. We can't prove it biblically in the text of the scriptures, but in Jewish rabbinical teachings, they, they, they teach that this was Jonah. So much so that even in John MacArthur's uh, commentary on the Bible, he mentions that also, that according to Jewish traditions, this is Jonah. So this miracle that takes place in Jonah was not the first miracle that took place in his life, but it actually uh, took place at his birth. And what does this, te- test- what does this testify to us? It, th- this testifies to the sovereignty of God, that God is in complete, utter control. It, it's, it's amazing. God's hand was on Jonah's life from the beginning at his birth to, to, to the very end. The book of Jonah, when people think about Jonah, the, most people, the only thing that comes to their mind is the book of Jonah. But this was not Jonah's first prophetic ministry in the Bible. He's actually uh, talked about in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where it says, uh, He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabath. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. So Jonah, back in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, Jonah prophetically and accurately predicted the restoration of the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. So, again, Jonah has a history in the Bible that a lot of us don't talk about, a lot of us don't see. But that's very important for you to know his background of his parents, who his mom was, who his, who his dad was. And uh, again, he was a prophet. He was one of many prophets that, that, uh, that prophesied to the northern kingdom there in Israel. You remember the, the top half of the kingdom was Israel. The lower half, yeah, the top half was Israel. The bottom half was Judah. And he prophesied in the northern region. Jonah's name. How about this? Anybody know what Jonah's name means? Dove. Jonah's name in the Hebrew word is dove. It's the ex- Jonah's name in the Hebrew is the exact same Hebrew words that's used in Genesis chapter 8. Where uh, Genesis chapter 8 verses 8 through 9 talking about the dove in the ark. It says, then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was in the surface of all the earth. Then he put, on, put out his hands and took her and brought her into the ark himself. Now, I'm not making a connection between Noah and the dove other than just to say it's the exact same Hebrew word that's used for Noah that's used for dove in the Old Testament. But it's interesting because both the dove in Genesis chapter 8 and Jonah, where, where do they both travel across? They traveled across water. Uh, 
both of them could not find a resting place. You know, Jonah found his resting place when he returned to the Lord. The dove found its resting place when it came back to Noah. And how many of you guys know that for us today, there's only one resting place for our lives. And that resting place is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's trusting in Christ and doing his will in our life. That's the place where you find rest. That's where we find rest for our souls, rest for our hearts, and rest for our lives. It's when we're trusting in Christ. It's actually when we, when we, when we um, backslide or, or we fall away from the Lord or we, or we get away from fellowshipping with the Lord that that's when we don't have peace. That's when we don't have rest and our heart's in turmoil and our life's in turmoil. But when we follow Christ, we have his perfect rest. That's an amazing thing. Have you ever been tempted? Now looking at the book of Jonah as we get ready to study it verse by verse. Have you ever been tempted to run from God's plan for your life? You ever been tempted? You ever been overwhelmed by life? Overwhelmed by the flesh? Overwhelmed by circumstances? Knowing what God has planned, what God has shown you for your life, but you've decided to run away from it. Have you ever felt like you were in that place? The, the book of Jonah is this. The book of Jonah displays God's sovereignty and man's free will, man's ability to make his own decisions and to, and to exercise his free will. But if anybody's read the book of Jonah, you know who prevails in the end, God's sovereignty. So yes, we have to make decisions in life. Sometimes we make good decisions. Sometimes we make bad decisions. But here's the cool thing about being a Christian. We serve an awesome, faithful God and an awesome, sovereign God. And God will see to it that his plans are fulfilled. So again, um, God, here, the layout of Jonah, God calls Jonah, says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Then Jonah responds, yes, Lord, I'm ready to go to Nineveh. No, he doesn't. He rebels. He goes against what the Lord says. He exercises his will, his, his own free will. But God is faithful, God is sovereign, and he turns things around, and we see in the end that God's perfect will prevails. God will move heaven and earth and all sea creatures and everything on this planet to fulfill his will. That's a mighty God we serve. That's an awesome God we serve, that our hearts can rest knowing that his perfect plan will prevail because ultimately he is in charge of everything in this universe. And that's, that's, that's mind-blowing. So, uh, Father God, thank you for your word again. As we look at it verse by verse, um, teach us tonight, Lord, and let us dive into this, this passage. And we thank you for it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amidiah, saying, So who is Jonah? We talked about that. Jonah was a prophet. And Jonah received direct revelation from the Lord, okay? He was, he was, in, he was uh, commissioned as a prophet in the northern kingdom to write down these words. We believe that Jonah was the author of many parts of the uh, book. He writes in third person, but we see that in a lot of the Old Testament books where the prophets put, their, put themselves on the back seat and they write in third person to describing what happens. But he's a prophet. He receives direct revelation from the Lord. And we think about that today. 
You and I do not receive direct revelation from the Lord in, in the, in, as they did with the scriptures. But you and I can receive revelation from the Lord as we meditate on his word, as we follow his word, as we study his word. That's why we study the scriptures, is so that the Lord will reveal himself to us. He will show himself to us. And I find a lot of times in my personal walk that the Holy Spirit will work mightily in my life and he'll confirm things in my life as I study the scriptures and um, I bring thoughts, I bring things I want to do to the Lord and I bring it to him and I show it to him and he will show me in his word which way I am to go. He will confirm it through a faithful brother in Christ who speaks into my life. But here, uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This was direct revelation to an Old Testament prophet. Verse two, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So, as I was looking at this this week, the first, the, there was a lot of information here, but the first question we have to ask ourselves is, why does God tell Jonah to go to Nineveh? Because we have the, the book of Jonah, we have Jesus uh, refer, referring to um, Jonah in the Gospel of Matthew. So I kind of brought all these things together to answer the question, why does God tell Jonah to go to Nineveh? The first reason that God um, tells him to go to Nineveh is right there in verse two. It says, God saw their wickedness. God saw their wickedness. And what, did he, what was he to take to them? A message of repentance, a message to warn them to turn from their sin. Now, Nineveh was not part of Israel. They, they were a Gentile city. But what, what, what was Israel supposed to be in the Old Testament? The same thing that we are in the New Testament. What was Israel supposed to be? Yes, exactly. Isaiah 49.6. They were to be a light unto the nations. Just like you and I as Christians, our job is to evangelize and be a light to the dark world around us. So was it with the nation of Israel. They were to be a light to all the nations. They were the people of God in that time period, in that time era. Isaiah 49.6 says, God says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So they had an evangelism program, just like we have an evangelism program. They were called to reach out. And here, Jonah's given a specific mission to go to Nineveh because their wickedness. And what does that teach us? What does that teach us? You know, the Pharisees in the first centuries, they had this thing where they, they said, what do they believe about the Gentile nations? They believed that they were logs for the fires of hell. And that is not biblical at all. To think that, that they were the chosen, these people were unchosen. You know, God's sovereign. God determines who's going to be saved, but he calls us to go out to all people, to all nations. And the Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So salvation was for all people. Salvation was for the northern kingdom. Salvation was for the southern kingdom of Judah. And we see here God extending grace to the city of Nineveh, which, by the way, is in today northern Iraq. And this is today... Uh, is, is Mosul. Remember, remember back during the Iraq War? 
Y'all probably heard a lot about the northern area called Mosul. Mosul today was what ancient Nineveh was. They still have a lot of churches. There's a, there's a large Christian population there that center around the, them being the ancient city of Nineveh. So that was the first reason. The first reason was God saw their wickedness, and he sent the prophet there with a message of repentance. The second reason that God sent uh, Jonah to Nineveh was it was a rebuke. It was a rebuke to the nation of Israel. See, there in the land of Israel, they had multiple prophets going throughout the land. And the prophets were preaching a message of repentance and turn to God. And for the most part, the people were ignoring it. They were ignoring the message of the prophets. And they were falling into apostasy. They were backsliding. So God says, you know what? I'm going to send one prophet to Nineveh and I'm going to show Israel all it takes is one prophet and people that are willing to listen. I can turn a whole entire nation around. So this was also a rebuke to, to that Israel in that day. And also, this is just one I added to it, was, uh, which I kind of alluded to all ago. The third reason that God uh, tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, I believe, is this is a preview. This was a preview of the church's mission. This was a preview of the Great Commission. You know, we see... Uh, uh, Israel, the chosen people of God, they had the glory, they had the covenants. Jesus came to them. But after Jesus died and rose again, what happened? It, it, it broke out and it went to all the, all the countries. So this was a preview of the church leaving Israel and spreading across the world. Jesus said in Mark 16, 15 and 16, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. The message of Jonah was the same for us today. It was go take the gospel to the people living in darkness. You know, and what's our message? Our message is twofold. It's repent and believe the gospel. It's, it's turn from your sin, put your trust in Christ. You know, Ray Comfort talks about salvation is like a coin and uh, a coin has two sides. One side is repent, one side is, is trusting in Christ. Neither one of those are works. Repentance is not a works. Repentance is a heart attitude that says, I am done with that old life. You know, I'm not perfect. You know, we're not perfect, but we're done with the old life of sin. We're, we're done with the old way of life and we're turning away from our lawless deeds and we're putting our trust in Christ. That is the message of the church. That is the message of the Christian. And this was a preview. Notice in verse two, um, uh, Noah's given two commands. Um, actually, three commands. Uh, arise, go, and cry against it. So he was told to go. What does that word go mean? That word go means to leave your location and go to where they are. So it was more than just praying for them, which that's important, but it was go to their location. The same with us as Christians. We have to go to the unbelievers and lovingly, respectfully, kindly present the gospel to them. We have to go to their location. The second thing he says there in verse two, he says, to cry against it, to cry against it. That phrase, cry against it, it means uh, to plead with them, to plead with them, to warn them. There needs to be a sense of urgency. You know, when I share the gospel with someone, you know, I'm like, man, please, 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 I beg you, think about this carefully. 
You know, don't even make a decision right now if you, if you need to think more about this. But think about your eternal salvation. What you do with Christ will affect all eternity. So there, there needs to be um, a sense of urgency and compassion when we are witnessing. We never want to come across as arrogant. We never want to come across as prideful. We, you know, we want to... Um, we want to say, you know what? I'm the wretch the song refers to. I, I'm the one that was broken and that God has restored. But there needs to be a sense of urgency. But at the same time, there needs to be a sense of warning. You know, um, when we look at our evangelistic endeavors and we look at those who don't know Christ, we need to understand that, man, what we have in the gospel it will, will determine their eternal destination whether they spend eternity in heaven, which is what we want by them trusting in Christ, or they spend eternity separated from God in hell. You know, so we gotta be very careful, family, with our witness. We gotta be careful. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay if hell must be filled, Spurgeon said, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Now, how many of you guys know evangelism is one of the most daunting tasks for the believer? It's hard, man. People get nervous when they think about how to share their faith. But family, we just gotta dig down deep. We just gotta dig down, we gotta swallow our fear. We gotta swallow our pride and lovingly, gracefully share the truth in love. Looking at verse two though, looking at Nineveh, um, at Jonah calling to go to Nineveh, you know, we need to keep this in mind. When the Lord, when the word of the Lord comes to us through reading our Bibles or, or hearing a sermon, we need to act. We need to move forward. Don't wait, don't procrastinate. You know, go out with a sense of urgency because there goes another minute, gone forever. So let's, let's do what we can while we have breath to share his love and share his truth. Amen? Verse, verse, uh, verse two, it says, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So we see here in verse three, uh, we see Jonah's attitude. The, right there at the very beginning, it says, but Jonah rose up. This rose up here in verse three is not a good uh, rose up. This is, this is Jonah's, what rose up was, was Jonah's rebellion, Jonah's pride. Jonah rose up to flee God's commands. That's, that, this is what Jonah, this is not a good rise up. This is Jonah saying in his flesh, God says, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to go in the other direction. And so he does. It says he flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's going to repeat that phrase twice in verse three. And he says, so he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare. And notice it says there, it says he went down into it. That's interesting because anytime you, you board a ship, anytime, you know, I did a 
several years in the Navy, been on several cruise ships. I go deep sea fishing. The first thing you do when you get on a ship is what? You go out to the balcony. Man, you want to see the ship. You want to see the water. You want to see the land. But notice it says, it was like bam, bam, bam. He, he paid the fare and he went down into it. To me, to me, this tells me he did not want to be seen. He did not want to be seen and he was likely experiencing a lot of shame, a lot of internal turmoil because that's what happens when we rebel against God. You know, we, we experience turmoil in our hearts. You know, we're not happy. You know, we're miserable. And vice versa, when we are serving the Lord, you know, we have joy. We have peace in him. But, uh, and then it says, and to go with them to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? I've actually been there before. Uh, I've been there many, many years ago. This is the southern tip of Spain. So think about the, imagine in your mind the Mediterranean Sea. They're in the nation of Israel. They're at Joppa. He's going to go all the way across the Mediterranean. To the, you, ever, you ever heard of the Straits of Gibraltar? The Straits of Gibraltar is the mouth of the Mediterranean that dumps into the Atlantic Ocean. That is where Tarshish was. It was in southern Spain. So he's going to go all the way to southern Spain, thinking, and here it is again, to go with them to Tarshish. He repeats this phrase again, from the presence of the Lord. Now guys, can we run from the presence of the Lord? Seriously? Can, 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 can you... Find a place on planet Earth where you're not in God's presence. You know, so many times people think, you know, I'm going to flee the presence of the Lord. What they're really saying is, I'm not going to go to church no more. Or I'm not going to be around certain family members no more that are faith-filled or whatever. But that, 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 that cannot happen in your life. You cannot flee the presence of God because he is omniscient. He is everywhere. Psalms 139 Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Uh, Psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And look at this. Look at the end of verse 10. Your right hand will lay hold of me. Do you, you see that? He says your right hand, it doesn't say it might lay hold of you or it'll try to lay hold of you or it'll come after you and try to grab you. He says there in Psalms 139 verse 10, he says, your right hand will lay hold of me. That's an emphatic statement. That's, that's how strong and how powerful and how awesome our God is. In October, I, I've, some of you have heard, I've shared this story, but I'm going to share it again real quick because it, it was just a marker in my life of my salvation and I'm gratefully and thankful for the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God. October 1991, I came home from leave. I was getting ready to leave for a deployment. I'm going to speed it up a little bit. I was here in Columbia. I was hanging out with some friends. My grandma calls me and says, hey, I want you to come to church with me tonight. So I shoot down to Augusta, Georgia, and... I go to church with her on a Sunday night to make grandma happy because everybody loves their grandma, right? So I'm sitting there with church with her, had a 12-pack of beer on ice in the trunk waiting for a party that I was going to that night. I sat in church, and, and as soon as the preacher said amen, I said, all right, grandma, I love you. And, and she said, no, we're going to the altar. I was like, oh, I can't say no to grandma. So she takes me down to the altar, takes me down to this little Pentecostal church, Church of God, down in Augusta, Georgia. And uh, 
these preachers lay hands on me. And I, I, I hear, all I hear is all these, feel is these hands, just laying all over. I hear people speaking in tongues and praying. And uh, it, 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 it got, I was very nervous. It, it, it scared the daylights out of me. I mean, it was so, it was so, um, as they were praying for me, I felt the flames of hell coming up, wanting to take me down because I was a wretched, deplorable sinner that loved my sinful life. So anyway, they prayed for me. And as soon as he said amen, I kissed grandma on the cheek, I got in my car and I came back up here to Columbia, spent a day or two more, then went back to Norfolk, Virginia, and I headed off my deployment uh, a couple days later. We, we, I was on the USS Concord, we pulled out of Norfolk, Virginia, traveled across the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean, and I'm gonna tell you something, God was on my mind every single day. Everything that preacher had said that night, I could not get it out of my heart. I could not get it out of my mind. It just, I was miserable. It's like, I wanted this. I wanted this salvation, but I didn't understand it. And I, I just couldn't figure it out. And, but I was, I was a soul that, that, that the Holy Spirit was working on. First port visit was Road to Spain, Tarsus, right where, he, right where he was heading to. Went to Road to Spain, pulled into Road to Spain. I'll never forget it. Uh, went out to a local bar. The bar is called Guns N' Roses, Road to Spain. You can look it up. And I got inebriated. Got inebriated, came back to the ship, and we pulled out of there. Then we went to Malaga, Spain. Then I took the bus down to Tormelinas, did everything a sailor does in a port visit in, in Tormelinas. And, and every, every day at sea, I was miserable. I was thinking about God. God was tugging on my heart. I knew I wasn't saved, but I wanted salvation. Pulled into Naples, Italy, there at the pier at Naples, Italy. I called my grandmother. I said, hey, Grandma, can you send me some of your preacher's tapes? She had them jokers FedExed across the, United, across the Atlantic Ocean, and I got them a week later. And so here I was in the Mediterranean Sea, the same place Jonah was, and God was working on my heart. We pulled into Athens, Greece. I'll never forget, we pulled into Athens, Greece. And, you know, it was kind of like this little buzz, like, Wow, I'm back in the ancient world, you know. And we're actually working our way through the streets of Athens, Greece. I was making my way to the Acropolis. I could see the Acropolis on the hill. And I remember me and my buddies, we, we saw this huge, beautiful church. And it brought back all those thoughts of God and, you know, how I was wanting him in my life and the Holy Spirit was working on me. And as soon as we turned the corner to go around the church, somebody had sprained a 666 across the side of the church. And that was kind of really weird and strange, but it kind of freaked me out, kind of scared me. But anyway, I spent the rest of that six-month deployment thinking about God, listening to those tapes, listening to those sermons, and I found myself wanting salvation. It was, the Lord was working on me. Came back home, um, pulled back into port April of 92, and a couple of weeks later, I visited a church, and I, res I responded to the altar call, prayed to receive Christ, put my trust in him, he, and he radically saved me. But that was the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. I heard the gospel that night. I was prayed for, and I went, I didn't just go across the Mediterranean Sea. I went all the way across the Atlantic and all the way through the Mediterranean Sea. And the Holy Spirit was just knocking on my heart the whole time I was there. That is the sovereignty. That is the faithfulness of God. And when God calls your number, there's only one thing you can do is say, uncle.
is say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So he says, where can I flee from your presence? You know, I left that church that night. Oh, I'm, I'm done with God. No, it wasn't like that because God is omnipresent. And he says in there, verse 10 of Psalms 139, your right hand will lay hold of me. So why did Jonah resist? Why did Jonah resist? If you understand the whole entire book, all four chapters, Jonah resisted because he was prejudiced. Jonah was prejudiced. He was prejudiced against the people of Nineveh. He wanted God's judgment on the people of Nineveh. He was like a, he had that pharisaical spirit in him, that judgmental religious spirit that says, I'm righteous, you're not, and you deserve to be judged. So he did not want to go to them with this message. The scripture is clear, family. Old Testament, New Testament, the scripture is clear. God's salvation is meant for all people, but it must be appropriated by repentance and faith, okay? Salvation is available to all people, but they got to turn from their sin and they have to put their trust in Christ. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. First John chapter two, verse two, and he himself talking about Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This doesn't mean the whole world's gonna be saved, but this means that salvation is available for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. How do you know you're called? Put your trust in Christ. Turn from your sin, put your trust in Christ, and rest, rest secured, he has called you to salvation. Amen? Verse four, verse four, Jonah chapter one says, the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. This is not a natural storm, family. This is not a turbulent storm. And I've been in the Mediterranean. I've seen 15 foot swells. I've heard the skipper come over to the 1MC and said, everybody get in your bunk. I've laid in a coffin rack. That's what they call them in the Navy. And you're, and you're in this, you're this little mattress and every time, and the ship's taking 45 degree rolls, and every time it rolls, your mattress goes, I mean, it was rough, but it wasn't like one of those. This was a supernatural storm. This is a supernatural storm uh, caused by a sovereign God. Even the oceans serve the purposes of the Lord. We, when we look in the scripture and we, we talk about the bodies of water, what do we see when it comes to the oceans? What did he do in Exodus chapter 14? He supernaturally parted the Red Sea. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, Jesus what, did what? He walked on the Sea of Galilee. Acts chapter 27, these, this very same water that Jonah's fixing to go across, the Mediterranean, Paul journeyed across this exact same body of water. God can cause storms. God calls this storm to get his attention, to fulfill his sovereign will. God had a servant, Jonah, who chose to rebel against the call of God. And God says, you know what? I'm greater than your decision. And I'm, I'm gonna fix you. I'm gonna right the ship. So he sovereignly causes the storm. You know, God can cause storms in our lives. You know, God can use the natural world around us 
to lead us, guide us, and direct us in supernatural ways, okay? You know, he can, he, he's, God is the ultimate weatherman. God is the creator and sovereign ruler of the universe. He controls the oceans. He controls the rivers. You know, you see, you, you see the, the Congaree River, the Saluda River. You see the oceans. You see them naturally flowing. Is any man responsible to keeping those rivers flowing? No. Who's responsible keeps the rivers flowing? God. The, the tides of the oceans, which is the mechanism that God uses to keep the oceans clean. Who keeps that going? The Lord. God controls the natural world. Listen to Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verse 24, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 8, 24 says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Jesus says to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And here it is, guys, in verse 27, what I want you to see. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? That's how big our God is that the oceans obey God, the rivers obey God. He is the sovereign ruler and creator of everything, from everything that happens in the sky with the clouds and the rain, to the rivers, to the lakes, to the oceans. He is in sovereign control. And here, he's using that natural world to, to bring Noah, excuse me, uh, Jonah, back to where he's supposed to be. Verse five, it says, then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and laid down, laying down and had fallen sound asleep. Poor guy, he's wore out. You know, it wears you out when you rebel against God. When you're not doing what's right, it wears you out. It produces mental anguish. It produces a physical anxiety. And notice um, that the, the, the verse six, he says, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And, and then verse, back in verse five, it says, then the sailors became afraid. And every man cried to his God. You know, every, people get religious when they're scared. You ever notice that? People get very religious when they're scared. Think about 9-11. Does anybody remember where they were on 9-11? The very next Sunday after 9-11, uh, I, I read, I was watching a news report. This was many, many years ago. But that, that Sunday after 9-11, church attendance broke an all-time record across our country because everybody was sad. Everybody was sad at what had happened. And, and, this, and that's the case with all tragic events is when our mortality gets threatened, our lives get threatened, something really tragic happens. Unfortunately, that's what it takes to get people thinking about the Lord. And that's very tragic, you know, because the scripture says no man is promised tomorrow. You know, we need to 
understand the, the brevity of life, that we could be here one day and we, and we could be gone the next. So we need to be fervent in our serving the Lord throughout every day. Verse 7. So, these, so another thing too is this points to the religion of the day. That those people, just like people are today, they were very religious. Verse 7. It says, Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Casting lots, what's up with that? You ever done a study, a Bible study on casting lots? Casting lots is, uh, there's 77 instances in the Old Testament where people uh, cast lots. There's seven, it's, it's used seven times in the New Testament. Now, we don't exactly know what, what the lots are. It could be dice, it could be sticks, it could be some kind of form of paper. But this, this practice of casting lots was very common in the ancient world. And it was very common in the Bible also. Casting lots was used to divide land, to determine God's will. Uh, the disciples used casting of lots to replace Judas. And even the soldiers there at Jesus' crucifixion, they cast lots for his clothing. So should we be casting lots today? I would say no. Why? Because today we have the Holy Spirit. And all those situations where they cast the lots was all before the church. You don't see casting lots after the birth of the church, but you see lots of it in the Old Testament and you see lots of it there in the Gospels. But we have the Holy Spirit to lead us today. But they were casting lots to figure out who this fell on. Verse 8, it says, and it, it says, verse 8, then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? He said, and he says, what is, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? This, my friend, this friends and family, this is an all out interrogation on Jonah. He is feeling the pressure. Now think about it. He's rebelled against the Lord. He's feeling shame. He's depressed, he's in mental anguish, and now all of a sudden he's got all these sailors at sea that are just drilling the snot out of him, trying to figure out what is going on. The lot fell to you. Tell us. And this family is where I believe, if, if you, between verses 8 and 9, I believe is where Jonah begins to have a change of heart. This is where he begins to see the light. Because they're, they're drilling him. What is your job? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? If they can figure these things out, they'll know who he's from. And, you know, they, were, they, they weren't Christians. At least they weren't at this part. I believe, I'm not Christians. They weren't believers. But they were trying to figure out who is he from so they could figure out what higher power has caused this to happen to them. But this is where he starts breaking down between verses 8 and 9. Because look at what it says in verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So one, he identifies himself as a Hebrew, a Jewish man from the nation of Israel. And he says, and I fear 
the Lord God of heaven. And notice what he says, who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, he's like, I'm serving the one who created all this. It's like he's coming back to his census, seeing that he's a Hebrew. He's going back to his Jewish roots. He's going back to his faith. Remember, this was a prophet in the northern kingdom who had prophesied. He knew the word of the Lord. He knew Yahweh God. And so he dips out, goes into shame, goes in the belly of the ship. He comes up, and now he's starting to come to his senses. And after he explains to them in verse 9 that he's a Hebrew, and I fear uh, the Lord God of heaven, it's like all of a sudden it dawns on them who he is. All of a sudden it dawns on these sailors who this guy is. Because look at verse 10. It says, Then the men became extremely frightened. And, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He says, The men knew In other words, they had knowledge. They had understanding. He had given them enough information to know that this guy, this Jonah dude on our ship, was fleeing from the presence of Adonai, from Yahweh, the God of Israel. And they became extremely frightened. You know, a lot of times when people are doing wrong, you know, the fear of God is put in them. And here they are at sea, and they know that they could drown. But these sailors... Knew, they knew about Yahweh, and now they understand that Jonah, that Jonah, the, this person that was on their boat, he was serving the true and living God. Look at verse 11. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. So it's, 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 it's that time. They got to figure out what are we going to do? How can we appease the situation? How can we fix this? How can we right the ship? You know, and when your life is threatened, you will do whatever it takes to survive. It's called going into survival mode. You will do whatever it takes. In verse 12, he said to them, is it to me, I, I think Jonah's broken. I think Jonah is, is repentant here. I think Jonah is just like, He's at the end. You know, you're, people, they get to the end, and they're like, you know what? I, I deserve judgment. You know, I've done wrong, and, and, and I'm ready to pay the price. I, I, I give up. I'm no longer going to defend myself, but I'm, I'm going to accept what I've done and accept the consequences. Because he says in verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Jonah realized that the storm was God's way of showing him that he was doing wrong. You know, he had flashbacks to the revelation. He had flashbacks to to God speaking to him, saying, go to Nineveh. But he chose to rebel. Now, my question, because... The author, Jonah, here, when we get to verses 13 through 16, he, he shifts the attention, and he shifts the attention to the sailors on the, on, on the boat. So my question for you is, do you believe they became believers? Do you believe they got saved? 
I'm going to just show you some words that's used here that I, I believe they became believers. I believe, let's take a look at it. Starting at verse 13, he says, however, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. So they wanted to have mercy, but they just, they weren't sure what to do. They weren't sure what to do. And rowing towards the shore, it wasn't getting them anywhere. So look at verse 14. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. In the beginning of verse 14, he says, they called on the Lord. You know, when we call upon the Lord, what are we doing? We're praying. Thank you. We're praying. We're, we are calling out his name. In our hearts, with our lips, we're calling upon the name of the Lord. When, they, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you know, you acknowledge how big he is and how awesome he is. And you're also repenting. You know, you're, you're abandoning your way of thinking, your way of doing things. You're abandoning sin and you're putting your trust in, you're putting your trust in him. They called upon the name of the Lord. And, and I imagine being at sea, they were very desperate. They were very, these men were very desperate to do whatever it took to get things right. And then it says in verse 14, and he said, we earnestly pray. That word earnest, earnest, earnestly, you know, they earnestly pray. In other words, there was a sincerity in their prayer. They were being real. Uh, they, were, they were being authentic. It says we, we earnestly pray. And then, and then they call on the name of the Lord by his holy Old Testament name. These guys, you know, they were there at Joppa. So we know they had connections in Israel. You know, Israel was meant to be um, a witness and a light to all the nations. I couldn't help but to think that these guys had been witness to in their life. But it says, it says, we earnestly pray, O Lord. In the Hebrew, this O Lord, this is Adonai. This is Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the, is the word that's used here. We earnestly pray, Adonai, Yahweh, the God of our salvation, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. And look at what it says. For you, O Lord, there they, there, there, there they go again, calling him Yahweh, have done as you have pleased. So here we see these sailors on this ship acknowledging the sovereignty of God and that God was in complete and utter control. O Lord, you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. These guys had a background, I believe, and they understood the scriptures. Maybe salvation was coming full circle here. Not 100% sure, but it, it kind of seems like it. And these, even as we get into verses 15 and 16, verse 15, he says, So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Oh, man, that's bad. That's bad. I've, I've seen people go overboard. I've, I've seen people go overboard in the Mediterranean, and that is no joke. That's, that's a, it's, a, it's a, a tough place to, to go overboard and be, to, to be plunged into the sea. That's scary, very scary. 
Going back to verse 16, it, it describes the men. Again, the author's putting a lot of emphasis on the sailors that were on the boat. It says, then the men, what does it say? Feared the Lord greatly. Now, when you fear the Lord greatly, that means that you stand in awe of who God is. To fear the Lord greatly means that you have a holy respect for who God is. To fear the Lord greatly, looking at verse 16, it produces a godly living. It produces fruit in your life. Um, th- this godly is the fruit of your belief, the fruit of your, f- fruit of your trust. And it says, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. What kind of sacrifice? Well, the the text doesn't say, but I think, I think that this, no, he had already been thrown overboard. He's, he's blowing up bubbles from down below, but this is the sailors on the boat. It says that they offered a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice do you think the sailors on the boat would offer up? A sacrifice of Thanksgiving. (laughs) A sacrifice of thanksgiving, maybe. A sacrifice of their life. To see that Jonah the prophet had been thrown overboard, the seas go calm, all of a sudden like, whoa, this is the true and living God. I, I believe they, they, offered, they could have offered a sacrifice of thanksgiving. They could have offered a sacrifice of their life. They could have sang a song to the Lord God Almighty. And then it continues. Uh, at the end of verse 16, it says, to the Lord, and they made vows. What are vows? Vows are commitments. Vows are commitments that you intend not to break. So they were making vows to the Lord. Man, I see a lot of fruit in that passage. I see these sailors were changed. So what Jonah stepped out to do, to rebel against the Lord, God even turns this situation around to bring the salvation of others, which we see in the sailors on the ship. I think that's pretty cool. You know, we are called to do the same thing as these sailors do. We are called to make deep commitments in our life. Romans chapter 12, verse one says, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual service of worship. And I also want to include Charles, Charles Spurgeon's commentary on verse 16. Charles Spurgeon says this, I quote. He says, brethren, I wish I had meet words with which I could fitly describe the peace which comes to a human heart when we learn to see Jesus cast into the sea of divine wrath on our account. So Charles Spurgeon says, just as we see, just as Jesus took the wrath for us, so Jonah was the sacrifice that was plunged in the sea that brought the peace, that brought brought salvation uh, to these men. And then finally, the, the last verse, verse 17, it says, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And the thing at verse 17, I want you to see, it says, and the Lord appointed, appointed. It, the, whatever great sea creature this was, whatever well-like creature it was, it wasn't, ha- it wasn't an accident. It wasn't just happenstance. God from heaven looked down through the oceans and he directed a specific fish a specific large fish to come up and take 
to, to swallow Jonah. What would, that's the, what, what, what would that have been like to be swallowed by such a huge fish? That would be scary. And you think about it, you know, Jonah, from Jonah's perspective, he was a prophet of the Most High God. And he went from prophesying in the northern kingdom to swimming in stomach acid inside of a fish. That's, that's a long ways to fall. You know, sometimes in life, we have to go to the bottom of the barrel before we can understand where we're at. You know, before God can fully get our attention. And how many would you guys agree, Jonah is at the bottom of the barrel. Now, some people will, some people will not believe this story. Some people will mock this story. Critics will criticize it. You know, and I would just simply say to them, you know, they're not arguing with, they're not, they're, they're not only disagreeing with us, they're not only disagreeing with the scriptures, but they're disagreeing with the Lord Jesus Christ himself because Jesus spoke specifically in the gospels of this account of Noah. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, which we're gonna go into this passage, we're gonna study this passage next week, verse by verse, in addition to Jonah chapter two. But just wanna bring it up um, as as we close in our study tonight. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation crave for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. People say, man, there's no way. There's no way that this could happen in the natural world. How in the world can you explain a fish swallowing a human being down in the ocean? There's no way. How could he survive? There's, there's no way that could naturally happen. And to that person, I would say, I agree. There's no way it can naturally happen. It was a supernatural miracle. That's how we explain Jonah. Don't try to explain it with science because... You can't explain it with science, but you can explain it with God because God's supernatural hand was upon Jonah as he was there. You know, and again, going back to the title of my teaching is you cannot run from a sovereign God. Or you can try to. You can try to run. You can try to flee his calling. You can try to run from what he's telling you to do. But God will get your attention. So let's, 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 let's do the right thing up front. When the Lord speaks to us and shows us what we're to do in a ministry or a calling, uh, let's just say, yes, Lord, I will, I will obey you freely. You don't have to send me to the bottom of the ocean to make me obey you. But let's, let's give him a willing heart and service. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this study of Jonah chapter one tonight. Lord, we, uh, we acknowledge you, Lord God, as the sovereign ruler and creator of the universe. We acknowledge your sovereignty, your power, and your majesty. And Father, help us to think clearly and to not run from your will, but embrace your will. To live for you with all of our hearts, to love you, to follow you, and to live our lives and surrender to you, Lord.
For we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Amen.